there is a brokenness in the acknowledgement of sin against God that minds out the truth of the inward being, bringing delight to God. True repentance will rejoice in the brokenness of the bones that once danced because the Savior makes all things new, and he restores to us the joy of our salvation. From what are we saved? Romans 5 verse 9 tells us that we are justified by his blood, and we are saved by him from the wrath of God. Believers in Christ are broken by sin while rejoicing in the repentance before a holy God who alone cleanses them and clothes them in righteousness while the Holy Spirit sanctifies and conforms evermore that adopted co-heir with Christ into his image. You just heard an excerpt from my latest blog post featured on Love Subscribe. Hi there, and welcome to the Love Subscribe podcast, where we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and where we grow in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. I am Dawn Hill, and I am the Love Subscribe. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. I wanted to talk today about something that all of us have in common as human beings. And it's not something that we really want to brag about or that we want to admit. And some of us don't even admit that we have this issue. But all of us, the moment that we are conceived in our mother's wombs, even at that moment, we are immediately born into this. And from there, whether we are conscious of it or not, we are born into this because this is what the Word of God tells us. We all battle and deal with sin. And I wanted to talk about this today in the state of men's souls. Men meaning men and women. So we're talking about human beings. And what is this issue that we have? We're dealing with sin. And we are also called to repentance. Every one of us is called to repentance. This is the state of men's souls. And I was thinking about in the current time that we are in and some of the things that have happened over the the years and even with this year of leaders being exposed, of things coming out into the open and realizing that teachers and such are held to a higher standard and what do we do with with what we hear and what we're seeing going on and I've heard a lot of people mention about David and about how David was a king was the king of Israel and that he was still allowed to maintain being the king of Israel and God didn't hold his sin against him and and such. And so this is the standard that a lot of people are using. So I wanted to use this today as a way for us to look at what the Bible says, how David conducted himself, and to go from there and to elaborate on that a little bit more and to see how it applies to us as Christians. Because no matter our title, whether we have a title or not, whether we are known as a teacher in the church or outside the church, whether we're atheists, whether we're Christian, whether we're whatever religion we are, whatever we believe, we all have a sin nature. We all have a sin nature. We all are called to repent of that nature. We'll talk a little bit about what repentance means and what the fruit of repentance should look like. That there should be, as a Christian, there should be fruit in our lives that bears with keeping with repentance. So when we look at David, if we're going to use David as an example and say, well, why are we holding other people to this standard of trying to call them out and trying to address issues and sin that's happened, um, horrible immoralities and such that's happened that are ultimately sins against God? When we use David, we need to look at how David conducted himself. And a lot of times we immediately think, well, David was a man after God's own heart. And we kind of brush underneath the rug what David did. But I want you to notice something in Scripture. Whenever you read about a man or woman 
in the Bible, with the exception of Jesus Christ, who was all God and all man, you are going to see that every one of them, their laundry, their dirty laundry is laid bare, is exposed. Why is that? It is to show that they are in need of a Savior as well. Nobody is immune from needing the saving grace and mercy of Jesus Christ on the cross. Nobody is immune from that. And we as Christians continually need to be reminded of that in our walk with Christ and never feel like that we've arrived, that we don't ever need to hear the gospel on a consistent basis to remind us of who we are in Christ, what we were saved from, and how we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we look at King David, let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is where we're going to see, and I'm going to sum it up for you real quick for the sake of time. But you can open your Bibles and read this, and we'll be reading certain passages as we go that I want to highlight to you. But basically with 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see that the story, very well-known story, is played out with David and Bathsheba. David did not go off to war like he was supposed to, as the kings did, as what it says in verse 1. He was on the rooftop, and he sees Bathsheba bathing. And he immediately begins lusting after her. He sends for her. She comes to the palace. They end up um, having intimate relationship with one another, and she gets pregnant because of their affair. Now, Uriah the Hittite, who was a soldier and a, and a warrior for David, comes back from battle, and David is trying, once he finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant, he ends up finding this out, and he instantly starts planning this way to cover this up so that it looks as if Uriah is going to be the father of this child rather than David. Now, we can speculate into this, but when you read through this account, there is no notation in this account. Just keep this in mind. And we don't know what David was thinking, but just keep this in mind. When you read this in the scripture, there is no mention at any time that David had second thoughts, that he was convicted. It was all seemed to be orchestrated and continued to be plotted and planned out. So David ends up talking to Uriah. He tells him to go home. And Uriah ends up not going home, but sleeping outside with the other soldiers at night at the door. And so David out, finds this out, and he's, you know, a little upset because he wanted Uriah to go back and be with his wife intimately, again, to cover up what was going on so nothing looked suspicious. And all this was done in private. So again, we're talking about the king of Israel in a high state, in a high position, that he did something privately and secretly, and we're going to see what happens to him in Second Samuel chapter 12. Excuse me. We were actually in Second Samuel chapter 11 with David and Bathsheba. Forgive me. Second Samuel chapter 12 is where we start seeing everything unfold and come out to the open. So in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David and Bathsheba have their affair. Uriah is on the scene now. He's not going back home. So David invites him to a feast. He ends up getting Uriah drunk. He tries to send him back home to his wife, and Uriah doesn't go. So what does David do? He ends up plotting to have Uriah murdered, to have him killed in battle. So he sends a letter by Uriah. By the way, Uriah has his own death warrant in his hand and has no idea of it, sends it to one of David's leaders in his army. And basically the letter says, put Uriah at the forefront of the battle in a certain place and then withdraw from him and let him be killed. So Uriah ends up, long story short, Uriah ends up getting killed in battle. News comes back to David and then 
after a time, Bathsheba mourns, and then he takes her in as his wife, and it seems all is well. Nobody knows, no harm, no foul, right? Nothing has happened that hurt anybody. It, it would seem nobody knows. I mean, it looks like Uriah died in battle. Everything looks like it's on the up and up. He had a child on the way. Nobody would have suspected that it was not his child. And so we see in Second Samuel 12, Nathan the prophet comes along, and he begins to give a parable, if you will, to David. And he begins to describe how there were these two men. And this one man had many herds and many flocks and that he was holding a feast. But there was this other man that was very poor and only had one lamb. And the rich man was demanding that the poor man use his one lamb for the feast. And Nathan asks David, what would you, how do you think this should be handled? And David was angry. That's what the scripture says. David was angry. And he began to say that that man needed to be killed. And, and furthermore, he needed to pay restitution in fourfold what he had taken. And what I found startling when you read this in verse 7 um, in Second Samuel chapter 12, we are actually in chapter 12. It says in verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. He is talking to King David. I want you to remember this. He is, this is a prophet speaking on behalf of the Lord, and the Lord is saying, You have done evil in my sight. You have broken my commandments. They were under the law then. We'll talk about that in just a second, what that meant. And he's saying, You despised me. He's telling this to the man that was after his own heart. Why was David a man after his own heart? We'll get to that too in just a moment. But he says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, as we said, the, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And then he goes on in verse 11 to say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For what you did secretly, I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. You know, I, I find that very interesting when we read that because there's so many times that we want to, how should I say this? There can be a tendency in all of us that all of us, it doesn't matter again what title or whatever you have, but there is this sinful part of us, this, this selfish part of us, that if we were caught in some trespass or sin or transgression, that we want to hide it. We don't want people knowing about it because it brings shame upon us and it brings conviction. And so you're seeing here that this man this man after God's own heart, this king of Israel that replaced Saul has now committed adultery and murder. And under the Old Testament law, which you can find these passages in Exodus chapter 21, verse 12, you can also find this in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, as well as Leviticus chapter 24, that it talks about what happens to a person who's caught in adultery and who kills a man wrongfully. 
David deserved the death penalty according to his sin. According to the law, that the Mosaic law that had been established, David was to be served the death penalty. He deserved to die. And what I find interesting here is that there's several things that we can see. I'll point out to you, and again, for the sake of time, I won't go into detail about these, but some things I noticed just to kind of point out, especially to my charismatic uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, that maybe you've been in movements like this and heard some things like this, but there's always the mention of the Absalom spirit. This is just a side note, but there's a mention of the Absalom spirit. There's a lot of different spirits mentioned that are frankly not found in scripture. The people are found there, but not the spirits of these people. And you'll find that there's a mention of the Absalom spirit, for example, and how uh, we're supposed to oppose it and it has these different characteristics. And, you know, if we're battling with something that it could be an Absalom spirit or somebody's conspiring against us and, you know, it goes on and on. But let me just point something out to you here that the Lord himself through Nathan the prophet prophesied to David that because of what he had done, that he would raise up evil against David out of his own house. And as we see in the chapters following chapter 12 in 2 Samuel, we see the horrible things that happened to David's daughter through his own son. We see that Absalom kills Amnon. We see that uh, Absalom flees and he comes back and he conspires against his own father to take over the kingdom. He takes his concubines, I believe, and begins to have relations with them in front of everybody. So it appears in scripture, if I'm not mistaken, it appears that the Lord is referencing what I just told you. And so it kind of contradicts the whole teaching of the Absalom spirit because this is basically going against the prophecy of God and denouncing it. Uh, Maybe I'm reading more into that, but it just kind of seems that way. When I was reading this, I thought, that's interesting. I remember hearing about the Absalom spirit a lot and can't find any reference to it in scripture whatsoever except for the man himself. And then to see this, it was as if there's consequences to David's sin. Now, again, David under the Old Testament Mosaic law should have died because of what he did. But look what his response is to Nathan's words that the Lord himself has spoken through Nathan. In verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now see, there right there we are seeing in this moment, and we'll talk about a couple of Psalms that David wrote here in just a minute. This is what got me started looking at this was Psalm 51. It's a very well-known Psalm that is addressing when David was caught with Bathsheba uh, by Nathan in, in the words of Nathan rebuking David because of his relationship with Bathsheba and the sexual immorality of that. Psalm 51 is a beautiful Psalm. And I, when I was looking at that, this I started looking at Second Samuel 12. But what's interesting to me is that David is experiencing, as we're going to see in Psalm 51, the type and shadow of a believer in Christ that is repentant and has contrition, is broken because of their sin against the Lord, because sin is against God. Yes, it is against other people, but ultimately, as we'll see in Psalm 51, sin is against God himself. That's who we're actually sinning against when we do things that are contrary to what the word of God tells us to do and is contrary to the spirit that is hostile to the Holy Spirit that are works of the flesh and such that these things are to be put under and crucified and killed by the spirit and that we are to be conformed to the image of Christ and we can only do that by being born again believers with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
And so you're seeing here with David that he is witnessing the, the justice of God and the mercy of God at the same time. And it helps us to see that God is not just one or the other. It's, we're getting a little picture here that God is all of these things in one, that it's not just a percentage of this and that, but he's all in one. And David is experiencing this. He's experiencing the justice of God, and he's also going to understand that there are consequences to his sin. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. You shall not die because uh, under the Mosaic law, God is giving you mercy. He is granting you mercy, which mercy is not getting what we deserve. David did not get what he deserved, which was death. And as we see in the New Testament, that type of death that we as unregenerated people is a spiritual death that even Paul elaborates on in the epistles, that it's a spiritual death that people experience, but that when we are born again in Christ, that we are given eternal life. And so we see that David is repentant. He is truly repentant here. It wasn't like Saul with Samuel and he was going, well, can you please go back with me and honor me in front of the people? Can you please go uh, offer a sacrifice with me, you know, basically to save face? No, David was repentant. He was a sinful man. He was a man after God's own heart. And the reason why he was a man after God's own heart wasn't because of how sanctimonious David was in and of himself or how wonderful he was. It was because he was a penitent man. He was a broken man before the Lord when he sinned and when he sinned against God. He was repentant of that. He had a contrite and broken spirit about him, and he recognized his fallenness and that he needed God and that he did not want to be separated from God. But Nathan says to David, Nevertheless, in verse 14, Because of this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who was born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. Now, as we read a little bit later on in chapter 12, you can read that on your, um, in your own time, and I would encourage you to do that. And please, anytime that you hear anybody, including myself, reading from the Word of God, and if something doesn't line up, then you need to be testing all of us and making sure that it's properly relayed back to you and that it's done correctly so that we're honoring and glorifying God and not drawing men unto ourselves. But as we see later on in 2 Samuel 12, that the child indeed does die. David fasts and prays and he puts on sackcloth and such, and he's doing this and weeping in the temple. And then at the seventh day, the child does die. And then David basically gathers himself, cleans himself up, and goes back to the temple and begins eating because he realizes what he did. And he realizes that there were consequences to the sin that he committed. And this was done publicly. You see here, again, that Nathan makes this clear that because of what he did in secret and because of who he was to be before the people, that he was a leader, supposed to be a godly leader, that it would basically be made known to the public that what he did was sinful and it was against God. We should not rejoice in people that fall. That, that's one thing. We don't ever rejoice in people that are sinning and falling or that they've, they've abused other people or whatever has gone on. We never rejoice in that. But we do rejoice in the truth coming forth so that way people can be made whole and healed and that people are no longer in deception. 
That's the thing. And that God is being glorified in the midst of all of that. And every, and the truth is coming to light and the darkness cannot hide any longer that there are no fruit. We, that we do not take part in the works that are done in darkness, but we expose them as what Ephesians 5, 18, I believe tells us we don't partake of them, but we expose them not to hurt people, not to condemn people, but to make sure that God is being honored and glorified in all things and that nothing is being done secretly that is bringing reproach on the name of Christ. So with David, as we see here in 2 Samuel 12, now we understand maybe a little bit more why he wrote Psalm 51. So there were actually two Psalms that David wrote in particular when dealing with his sin. There was Psalm 32, but Psalm 51 is the one that's more well known for this particular issue with him having an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And I'm going to read the whole thing to you. Um, Psalm 51, verse 1. You can follow along with me. I am reading from the ESV. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second because we're seeing here that David is is showing he is repentant, and he is a broken man before the Lord, and he's asking for mercy initially. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, and blot out my transgressions. And we know as believers in Christ, the only way that our transgressions can be blotted out is by the blood of Jesus. And we're going to see the type and shadow here as we go. But even with this, that he was brought forth in in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Some people speculate and believe that David was conceived in an adulterous affair. There's no record of that to my knowledge. There's no indication of that in scripture. A lot of other people believe that David is affirming the fact, I am a man. I am a fallen person. I am a sinner. I was conceived in iniquity because my mother was a sinner as well because we are in a fall we are in a fallen state before we know Christ so this seems to be what a lot of other people as well on the other side think that this is implying is that he is acknowledging he that he's a sinner just like everybody else behold you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean wash me and I shall be whiter than snow Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. I don't know about you, but I know that I can certainly, when I'm reading this, it's relatable. We can relate to David because he is expressing the absolute depths of his soul and his heart to God, that he desires to be washed clean, that he wants to be made right before God, and that he does not want to be in this state, and he wants to rejoice in the brokenness that God has exposed this sin to him, that God has exposed this transgression to him, and he wants to rejoice in that brokenness of being exposed, being brought to light in the midst of that sin that he did. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Now, I don't know if you're seeing this, but as I'm reading this, 
this has so much type and shadow in here of a believer in Christ in in the new covenant coming before the Lord and saying such things. I mean, we're even seeing that he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me, restore to me the joy of salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Well, what do we do when we have been born again in Christ? We share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news. It's the good news that we are dead in our trespasses and that we are enemies and children of wrath. But there is a savior who is Christ the king who has come and paid our ransom, who has paid the ransom to God and paid for our debt of sin against God and that he gives us eternal life when we repent and confess him as our Lord and Savior and that we are washed clean by his blood and that we declare this gospel to other people that there is good news, that there we don't have to be lost that we can be found by Christ and that we can be put on the right path. And even in verse 7, I want you to notice it was when it says, I'm backtracking a bit, when it says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. When you look in the Old Testament, the priest would actually do this uh, with water or even blood from what I read. And they would do this on people such as lepers or people that were unclean or defiled in their bodies. They would actually sprinkle this on them to, to give them... Uh, spiritual cleansing, if you will. And so we're seeing here, even with this, that David's wanting to be clean and, and wash me and I shall be white as snow. Well, the, the blood of Christ washes us white as snow. It washes our garments to where that there's no blot or blemish or stain that can remain because of that. It's nothing that we've done that can take that stain away. We, can, we can't do anything to take that away. It is the completed work of Jesus Christ that takes the stains away when we trust in him. And when we, are, when we fall and when we have things in our lives that we are continuing on this sanctification in Christ by the Holy Spirit, and when we sin, that we can go and confess to the Lord, and we can confess these sins before Him. We have a, an intercessor, a high priest that ever intercedes for us. If we no longer sin after believers, why do we need a high priest? This is something to think about. Why do we need Jesus ever interceding for us? If we don't ever have issues with sin again in this in this world, because we live in a fallen world, our flesh doesn't get born again. We are ever battling against our flesh and having to put it under and understanding what Galatians 5 tells us about being led by the spirit and not by the works of the flesh. I go on. It says, verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to tell you that in this place, in this posture here before the Lord, that the brokenness is a beautiful thing before God. Because when we are in, have a broken and contrite heart before the Lord, he does not despise that. And he wants us to come to him in that brokenness rather than in a prideful state and say, I don't need a savior. I don't need to repent. I don't have to deny anything. I'm a good person. 
We're not good. And that's what Romans 3 even tells us. None of us are good. You probably heard me say that before, but none of us are good. I'm not good. Apart from Christ, I'm not good. I'm a wretched person apart from Christ. There's things in me that I'm still, to this day, every day, all of us, there's things that we don't like about ourselves or we know. I I know that's not pleasing to God. I know. And it could be something really small. I'm not talking about thing of, well, your th- your sins are far worse than mine, which there are, you know, sins against the body that are wretched and are ultimately against God as well, which all sin is against God. But you get what I'm saying is that God wants us coming to him in that broken, contrite state and not in a prideful, puffed up state to where we say, I'll just keep my distance from God and, you know, I'll just deal with this on my own. When we don't come before the Lord and repent of sin and come before him broken and asking him to help us, then we're really being prideful. And it can even be a false sense of pride in thinking, well, I'm just being humble when we're really being prideful. And we have to be reminded to come before the Lord and to ask him to forgive us and ask him to help us by the by his spirit, to be led by his spirit and to glorify him in all things. Verse 18 says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So we see in Psalm 51, David's heart before the Lord that he was truly a repentant man. And that's the difference between if we're going to look at David and use him as an example, then we have to look at the fact that David repented before the Lord. He did wicked things that were against God. And yet God had mercy on him. Why? Because David came to him and acknowledged even before Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And the response was, you will not die because of this. However, there are consequences in the earth, in this earthly life that you will face just because we are forgiven by God and that we come to him repentant which is beautiful and it's a wonderful thing. And we, we want everyone to do that. We want people to have eternal life and to not be separated from God and to be in hell, to be separated from the love of God and be in hell. However, we have to understand that even in repentance, there can still be consequences in this earthly life to our sin. And that's what David lived. He had to live with the fact that because of his sin, his and Bathsheba's sin, it wasn't just his sin, because of his and Bathsheba's sin, it cost them the life of their child. Now, they would go on to have another child. The next child they had was their son, Solomon, who would become King Solomon, who would build the temple that God wanted to build. And he was given wisdom by God, and he was honored as a great man. But again, he fell as well because he was a sinful man, and he did not obey God's commands to not have any dealings with the foreign women that worshipped other gods. And that was a weakness for Solomon because his flesh was weak. <laughs> so again, we, we need to look at this and understand when we're hearing people say, in whatever situation, but in particular, when we're hearing people say, well, what about David? You know, God forgave David for what he did, and he was a man after God's own heart, and he was the king of Israel, and he still got to be king of Israel. And when we're talking about leaders in the church, and we find that some have fallen and some have done horrific things, but we want to use David as a standard, then we have to look and see, okay, well, then did they do what David did? Did they repent? Did they truly repent? And to repent means to 
change your way of thinking. And in in that, your actions are going to change. You are going to bear the fruit in keeping with repentance. You are not going to be the same person that you were. Whether you're dealing with sexual immorality, whether you're dealing with lying, or whether you're dealing with um, stealing things, or uh, fits of anger, or rivalry, or dissension, or whatever it is, jealousy, uh, competition, I mean, pride, The list goes on and on. It's all sinful behavior because it doesn't point back to Jesus Christ. But if you don't see someone that is truly repentant and they're still trying to cover up things and they're still trying to hide things and they don't want to confess to what they've done and there's no brokenness in them before the Lord, that they've sinned against God and that they want to be made right before him, they don't want to continue on in such a way that they're dishonoring and bringing reproach on the name of Christ, and there's no fruit to that in keeping with repentance, then that's a problem. It is a problem that is not to be ignored. So this is why we have to look at the contrast of this. We have to look at the contrast. We have to look at the fact that there are people that look like sheep, and they're not sheep. They're not the sheep of God. And I know I've heard some people mention about Paul, and it's a good point about in Philippians, I believe, Philippians chapter one, when Paul is talking about his imprisonment, and he's talking about that he wants the brethren there in Philippi to know that um, that his preaching of the gospel has been fruitful, and that the men that were there were much, much more confident in the Lord because of Paul's imprisonment. And he said, you know, some indeed preach the gospel out of envy and rivalry at others from goodwill, and the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the sake of the gospel, the former do it out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And then Paul goes on to say, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You see, we don't put our hope and faith in a man because or a woman because when we begin to do that, when we put our faith and hope in a person, then we are going to be disappointed. If our faith, which by the way, our faith is not in it's not a force. It's not an energy. It's not anything that we can conjure up. Faith is in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for us to save us from the wrath of God, which is in Romans 5, 9. When you encourage you to read that, if you ever wonder what you are saved from as a believer in Christ, you are saved from the wrath of God. That is what you're saved from. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But that's what you're saved from. When you confess and believe in your when you confess the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that he was resurrected by God from the dead and you shall be saved, you are putting your faith in Christ and you are being saved by the wrath of God and you are acknowledging that Jesus Christ paid your debt that you should have paid and the wrath the cup of wrath should have been drank by you and instead it was drank by Christ. And he took the wrath of God on himself for your behalf so that you could be clothed in righteousness and made right and reconciled to God the Father and be given eternal life to not be separated from him. It does not mean that you're not going to face things in this life. It does not mean that if you sin that you are going to be squeaky clean coming out of there and you can repent of it and all is going to be well. There could be consequences to what we do. And there's no way to escape that when we're in this earth right now. There's no way 
to avoid that. There, and there may be times that there's grace given to us and mercy given to us in that moment. And we don't experience the consequences or the blowback from sin that's been done. And then there's other times that we are going to have consequences and we just rest and trust in the Lord and say, bless the Lord. You know, I bless the Lord no matter what's going on here. I trust him and understand that there are things I'm going to face even though I'm forgiven. There are things I'm going to face as repercussions from from that sin, but I'm going to be okay because I my trust and my hope is in the Lord. So in closing, I want to just say that we can learn a lot from people like David in the Bible. Even in reading Psalm 51, we can see that, again, the types and shadows of a believer in Christ calling out for a Savior, calling out for a high priest to cleanse us, to take the sacrifice before the altar and to make us clean and whole and to give us atonement and forgiveness for our sins. And there's only one sacrifice that can do that, and that was the sacrifice on the cross of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the only one that can wash us clean and make us whole and give us eternal life by faith in him and not a, a man or a woman of God and not a, a believe, another a teacher or preacher or whoever. Our hope is not to be in them. Our allegiance is not to them. Our faith and our hope and our trust and our allegiance is to God. With one last thing in this, in keeping with this uh, context of repentance, I was looking through something I wanted to share with you real quick that was actually in my book called The Valley of Vision. And I started reading this with my daily Bible reading a couple of days ago. And it's really been a blessing. I'll read a th- a three of them at a time for my Bible reading. And I was thumbing through it before I started this the other day. And I came across this one section of repentance. And so I found this one I'll read to you that was just so beautiful. And you may relate to this. It's called Continual Repentance. O God of grace, thou hast imputed my sin to my substitute, and hast imputed his righteousness to my soul, clothing me with a bridegroom's robe, decking me with jewels of holiness. But in my Christian walk I am still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity. My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations of sin. My receiving the Spirit is tinctured with selfishness. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. I am always standing clothed in filthy garments, and by grace am always receiving change of raiment. For thou dost always justify the ungodly. I am always going into the far country and always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me, and thou art always bringing forth the best robe. Every morning, let me wear it. Every evening, return to it. Go out to the day's work in it. Be married in it. Be wound in death in it. Stand before the great white throne in it. Enter heaven in it, shining as the sun. Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, the exceeding wonder of grace. Be blessed today. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram at lovesickscribe. And if you enjoy reading, feel free to hop on over to lovesickscribe.com and subscribe to my blog. I've enjoyed being with you today, and I look forward to our next time together as we talk about biblical truths, current topics, 
and we continue to grow together in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. Blessings to you.